We're going to be at Matthew 23 today. However you access your uh, Bibles, you can pull those out if you're not familiar with looking up Scripture. Most of it will be on the screen uh, behind me this morning. We are right in the heart of this series called Pitfalls, where we're looking at these kind of traps, these things that jump out of us sometimes in our faith walk that try to trip us up, try to slow us down. And I love the songs we've been singing this morning that are about the, the goodness and the graciousness of God, because one of those traps that is always out there to get us is this idea that God's out to get us. God's out to, to trip us up, to snare us. He's just looking down from heaven for some moment, some time when he can reach down, throw a thunderbolt our way and just screw up our lives. Uh, some of you may know, some of you don't know, I, my undergraduate degree is in TV film production and right out of college, I worked at Nickelodeon Studios down in Orlando. One of my, it was a favorite, it was a great job. I worked on uh, I worked on the show Legends of the Hidden Temple, Guts, Clarissa Explains It All. This like the, the golden age of Nickelodeon I was there. My favorite, though, was Legends of the Hidden Temple. Uh, if you never saw this show, it was like this maze running. It was like Indiana Jones turned into a game show. And these little kids would run through this temple, and the temple guards would jump out and try to scare them and stuff like that. And it was fun to watch, but what was really fun was after we would be done shooting the show for the day, those of us who worked on the show, we would like go and hide in the temple and we would try to run through and we weren't as nice to each other as we were to the kids. And so you'd be running, you thought you knew where the traps were, but we would jump down from the scaffolding, we would pop out at the doors, knock people over down into the pit, like you never knew where the attack was coming from. And I don't think any of us ever made it fully through the temple until we got uh, destroyed by our friends. And and I think sometimes we think that's what life is like. Like we're just running through it the best we can, and God's going to throw a trap our way. Something's going to come out and knock us down. Things start going too well. We better watch out. And we have this idea God is out to get us rather than God is for us. And what I really want us to look at and what we've been looking at over these past few weeks are these pitfalls that not God places into our lives, but that sometimes we place or allow other people to place in our lives that derail us from thinking and understanding what it means to follow God. And I want you to understand that we, we said that this is not as much about the external, moral, and physical sins. It actually deals with these spiritual trips of self-righteousness and pride that often come when we get too religious in our life. And you look at even Jesus, like Jesus spent most of his time when he was teaching and encouraging people. That was a large part of what he did. But he also spent a large portion of his time here pushing back on the religious culture of that day, the self-righteous nature of people and the traps that they were creating in people's lives to keep them from following God completely. And this is Matthew 23. This is what this passage is about. In Matthew 22, Jesus had come into Israel, into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. People were crying, Hosanna. He shows up at the temple, and he physically cleanses the temple. He just makes a show and says, this is not what's supposed to be happening here. He leaves, comes back the next day, which is Matthew 23, and he doesn't cleanse the temple physically again. Now he's doing it spiritually, and he's placing these woes. He's communicating these woes out to the Pharisees, these judgments, and he's saying, beware, caution, where we are saying, stay away from these things. And over the last couple of weeks, we looked at four of these. I want to just remind you what they are because we're about to turn kind of to a second section of the woes here. During these first one, he was really dealing with the Pharisees' teachings, what they were saying. He was dealing with manipulation. 
The Pharisees were adding rules and regulations to the commands of God. They were creating corrupt nature that was keeping people just out of the reach of God's grace. And that's one trap that people put. Then they were using the trap of guilt, where they were constantly reminding people of how their sin and shortcomings instead of God's grace and forgiveness. They were creating a way to control people and remembering that everybody must pay up or else. They were finding ways to control people versus letting people walk in freedom. Last week, we looked at this idea that the Pharisees were setting out traps of infatuation where they were helping people and they were living in their lives where they were more passionate and found the things of God more valuable than God himself. They were more worried about the exterior of the temple, the gold on the temple, and the way the, the, the altar looked and actually the presence of God in their life. And they were missing the most important and it led to this entitlement aspect that was saying, look what I have done for God. And then we talked about last week too, this trap of invasion where people come in and they try to tell you it's all about the little things. Make sure you do every command down to, remember the, the mint, the dill, and the uh, cumin that we talked about. Those You even have to tie off these little bitty things. And the Pharisees were creating all these extra parts to invade every aspect of your life. And instead of looking at God as Lord of our life, it was like he was lording over us. Instead of healing our heartache, it was creating more of a headache to follow God. And by people invading our life, and that led to entrapment where we never can pay our debt to God off. And today we come to this turning point in the woes because these first four push back on the Pharisees' teachings, the doctrines that they espoused, and what it meant to follow God. But these last three that we're going to look at this week and next week, they move from exposing their teaching to now focusing on their character. And this is where it gets very difficult. Jesus isn't just saying what these men are teaching are bad. In these next few woes, he's going to say these are men of bad character. You think these men are nice? You think these men, they looked apart? Let me tell you, they're not just teaching things bad, but these men are corrupt to their core. It reminds me, I don't know if you grew up watching Scooby-Doo, right? I loved watching Scooby-Doo growing up, but if you watched it more than once, you knew what was going to happen, right? The nice old man that everybody liked at the beginning, right? He created some crazy thing where when they pulled the mask on, the end, it was like, oh, Farmer John, it's you. We thought you were a nice man, but really you're bad and evil. That's what Jesus is doing. It's a Scooby-Doo moment here in the Bible where he's like, look, these men that you thought were righteous and above the law, like I'm going to pull the mask off of them and show you they are corrupt and evil men. Bad character, bad morals. These men who had propped themselves up as, as the religious authority and had intentionally tried to make their voices more important than the voice of God, Jesus is exposing them here. So let's pick it up in Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, and just how Jesus, see how Jesus begins to turn the screws even harder on the Pharisees. He says, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Let me give you a little bit of context here. Jesus is talking about the practice of ritual cleansing that was part of every Jewish household. There were laws written back in Moses' day that told people how to literally clean things after they would cook or after they would eat. And these were very practical laws because it showed you know, they were very sanitary practices. How do you not get sick 
How do you not let bad things happen? How do you keep your home in a way that sanitation is clean and you're every not, everybody's not getting sick? And so, of course, it was common sense. We would clean both the inside of a plate and the outside. But if you cook at home, what do you spend the most time cleaning? Like, I have a pot and pan. If I cook something in there, I clean the inside first, where I actually cooked it, and then I worry about the outside. What they were doing here and what Jesus is using here, he's not pushing back on this practice. He's actually using this as an example. He's saying, you Pharisees, you people, you are more worried about your exterior than you are your interior. You're more about your actions and what you look and how you people think about you than actually what's happening on the inside of your heart. I, I remember growing up, I... Uh, for some reason, when I was probably six or seven years old, I just didn't like to take a shower. Like, it was not, I love showers now. Like, I, I was like, ah, oh, warm water, right? Hot shower feels so good right now. But uh, uh, I, I would not want to take a shower. And so I would go and I would sit and I would turn the water on in the bathroom, close the curtain and close the door. And then I would just sit in there for like 10 or 15 minutes. I'd never get in the shower. Then I'd turn the water off, come out, and my parents like, they didn't take them maybe two or three times so they caught on. They were like, did you shower? And I was like, of course I did, you know, and no wet hair, no something. I'm sure what they could tell, they could smell me as I was walking out after like two days of not showering. But it was my idea. I'll just make them think I'm doing something, but how will they know that I'm not clean? Well, it's very obvious in our lives when all we do is worry about the exterior and not the interior. And this is what Jesus is putting back, pushing back on. The Pharisees of this day were very recognizable people. Let me tell you why they were recognizable. Not because of their works of charity, their acts of service, or their humble spirits, or their genuine love and care for other people. They were very recognizable because of their outer garments. Each Pharisee daily wore 18 different pieces of clothing. Each clothing represented something very specific. The color, the cut, how they wore it, how long it was. It all represented something unique that was telling people how righteous they were. In a, in a word, it was a costume. They were wearing a costume every day to prove just how righteous they were. They created this air of righteousness about them. And Jesus was making it very clear at this point that these men looked apart. The They're all dressed up for righteousness, but their heart and their souls have not been cleansed by the righteousness of God. And he described this in that passage where he said, you are full of greed and indulgence. Greed and indulgence. And the Pharisees fell into this trap, and many of us can fall in this trap of thinking that the Christian life and following God is about obligation. It's just about what I have to do. So they would do things to create this air without actually dealing with the deeper parts. Here's what the idea of obligation means. It's the idea that if I do the things I am obligated to do for God, then he is obligated to allow me to do the things I want to do. It is this spiritual sparring match with God. He makes us do some things that we don't want to do just so that then I can build up enough spiritual equity that maybe at some point down the line I can do the things I really want to do. It's this idea, I'll only do it. I'm only doing this because I feel obligated to do it. Not out of opportunity, not out of passion. It's this obligation. I'm paying into the spiritual piggy bank. So when I need to do something that I know God doesn't like, I can make a withdrawal and say, God, 
I did my obligations. Now you're obligated to let me get away with this. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And this is the exact opposite of what Christ had been teaching about what it meant to follow God. Jesus had been saying that pursuing God meant that the desires of your heart would begin to be transformed to the likeness of God. I'm not paying into this spiritual account so that I can make withdrawals for my sins. As I learn and passionately pursue God, my desires, the things that I want in my life, are going to become transformed. And I start to understand the value of surrender. It's not a trade-off. But instead, it's a life lived to the fullest the way God originally intended. But instead of surrendering their sinful desires to God and experiencing this transformational work, these Pharisees have created a barter and exchange system with God. And this stunning accusation by Jesus, he is calling this religious priest and teachers of his day corrupt, narcissistic, and sinful. This is not a backhanded insult. It's not an under-the-table jab. It is a hit to the face. It is one of the biggest insults he can give them to call them greedy and self-indulgent. What do those two words mean? Greed is defined as this when you look at this word and what it originally means. It's an intense and selfish desire for wealth, power, or food is what it meant. It's whatever whatever you want. Say, I want it. I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. To put it simply, Jesus is saying these men are willing to do anything, say anything, and corrupt people's understanding of God in such a way to satisfy their own lustful desires. Self-indulgence is this unabated pursuit of your own appetites, desires, and whims. It's willing to do anything, even use your spiritual influence to corrupt people and their understanding of what is godly. If you read the news this week, this played out right in front of us. There was a report out of Pennsylvania of a story now of, you know, over the years of 300 priests who had sexually assaulted over 1,000 children and people in their churches. And there was one story I read specifically where a lady said when she hears the word God now, she gets physically ill. Just she, This is a pharisaical practice. They had corrupted the image of God in front of people and manipulated the image of God to create people or make people do things and respond to them in a certain way. They were corrupt individuals that are corrupting other people. This is a horrible practice, and it's a practice that's been around well before our day and all the way back to the time of Jesus. And I want you to hear this. No religious clothing or no righteous portrayal will cover up the stench of sin that is eating away at our heart and soul. We can't clean the outside if we don't deal with the inside with our sin. There are things in our heart and the hearts that need to be cleaned as much as the exterior. This is hard. There's hard work in cleaning our soul. This is what the that many of us are often unwilling to do to face the hard, dark truths that we are sinful people. And here's what we end up doing. We start to believe that sin is more valuable than surrender. We start to think that our sin is more valuable than actually surrendering to God. And we'll just deal with the outside, whatever the spiritual practice is. I had a car, one of my favorite cars growing up. It was a, it was a, a I don't remember, a Mitsubishi, I think, Eclipse. It was like a sports car. I would spend hours working on the outside of that car, like waxing it, cleaning it, stuff like that. And I remember one time my dad mom got in the car with me, and they were like, you clean the outside. They're like, there are French fries in here from two weeks ago. Like, why don't you get the vacuum out and clean the inside? Because 
people I would drive by and I got try to look impressive in my car, they never saw the inside, right? It was just the nice shiny wheels and stuff like that. But nobody wanted to ride in this car because of the wretched smell of the French fries, right? And this is what we do. We will spend all of our time buffing up the outside of our life, but we don't do the hard work of dealing on the inside and realizing it's about surrendering to God and giving up our sin. And here's what we do. We think we're on even footing with God and we get to say what's true, right, and holy. And we start bartering with God. We think we carry as much wisdom and knowledge as God and we're unwilling to listen and learn from him. How does this show up in our life? It's when this, when we start to have a lower view of the impact of sin on our life. We think, you know what? That, that may be a sin for somebody else, but it's not that big of a deal for me. And then we create this bargaining relationship with God to justify actions that we know that he doesn't approve. Sin. We're like, like I said before, we will do this, this, and this so that I can keep my pet sin over here and be happy with it. And we diminish the value of God's wisdom and we elevate the value of our own personal experience. Well, this sin's never really hurt me. It's never, you know, maybe, maybe God got this one wrong. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about this sin. And we start bargaining. We diminish his view. And we create this superiority based on a merit system. Look what I did. Now, God, you do this for me. What impact does this have on our lives today? Here's what happens. We start to spend more time. We spend more time trying to justify our weaknesses and sinful desires and habits than developing beyond them. Man, I, I've struggled with this in my life for years. When I get comfortable with a sin, I will spend more time trying to protect it than to grow from it. Because I'm like, you know, God, this isn't as bad as you think. And instead of doing the hard work of identifying it and getting rid of it, I try to protect it and I lose my intimacy with God. That's what these Pharisees have done. They have categorized and moved everything in their life into certain categories and say this part, I got, you know, my, my positive outweighs my negative. And then we elevate in behaviors and actions that have perceived spiritual value so that we can stock up our negotiating power with God. But, you know, God, I read my Bible every day this week. I've gone to church three weeks in a row. I mean, I've got it. You know, everybody saw, I put, I put some money in the plate last week. I did that. We start stockpiling these things so that we can then spend it to keep our sins away from God dealing with this. We start to trade good deeds and good deeds for bad deeds and bad deeds. We start being a spiritual scorekeeper. And we think, all right, I've got enough good. Now I've, I got, I've earned two bad days that I can actually do. Do you do this when you diet, right? I mean, you're like, I ate good for four days. Hamburger and french fries and pizza today. We call it cheat day, right? But we like, we've stocked up enough. We think we deserve a cheat day. And we do this with God. And we go angry when God, with, God, with God, when he doesn't remove the consequence of our sin, even though we think we've done enough good to cover it. Our sin begins to show up and it begins to hurt others and hurt ourselves. And we're like, God, why, why are you allowing this to happen? I've done other good things to make up for this. And we get angry at God. Here's what happens is this. We create this 
like star reward system that I remember if you elementary school or middle like if you do a good deed today you get a star a star a star if you're bad today they erase the star take it away and like if you get so many stars then you can purchase something from the goodie bag and stuff like that I mean if you if you did that or maybe your teacher who does that I remember those growing up I remember my senior year we had a substitute teacher in English. It was like middle of the year. None of us cared about school anymore. You know, we were done. And she comes in and she had already written first period, like a list of six rules on the board and like a star value for We're seniors in high school, right? The first one was do not touch anyone else minus one star. Well, you can imagine like all of us in there started going, you know, just touching everybody we could. I, whatever rule there was, we were finding a way to break it. She lasted about 20 minutes before she left and went to another class. I don't think she ever did high school again. But we, we think that that's our, how we negotiate with God, the spiritual merit system. And I want to tell you what this leads to is rationalization. We start to rationalize ourselves to with ourselves and convince ourselves that sin isn't sin and it's not really that bad. We put ourselves outside of the lines and thinks rules do not apply to us. And we can make almost any behavior seem not only reasonable, but valuable. And we start protecting it and keeping it. And I want you to hear this morning, is this, if this is what you think biblical Christianity is, I want to redirect your perspective of sin. Sin is not your friend. Sin is your enemy. It is out to get you. It is out to trap you. Sin, what we often do is this. We equate sin to a, a specific behavior, right? So it's don't do this, 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 and this. And we have, if we can just change our behavior, behavior modification, do more. This is why we get caught up in this, what the Pharisees were doing. Like, I'm obligated to do this, and it creates an obligation for God. I want you to hear sin is much deeper than behavior. It's much deeper than that. It's choosing to believe that I know better than God. My ways, my desires are higher than his ways and his desires. And that I want better for me than what God wants for me. That's what sin is. It goes back to Adam and Eve, the very first sin. It's believing that we know better than God. And willing to put ourselves ahead of that. And that's what rationalization is. And I want to redirect your perspective on sin and help you understand sin isn't a game we play with God. Instead, it is something that corrupts and decays our souls. I'm not here today to give you a list of things not to do, a list of behaviors to avoid. I want to challenge you today to not elevate the value of your sin and instead elevate the value of surrendering to God and what God's done in your life. And if you're here today, or if you ever get in a point, and you're actually using this tactic to grow a Christian church, I want you to actually understand what you're teaching. You're actually teaching people more to love their sin than to love their God and their Savior. If you can compartmentalize your life in such a way that you can say, I'll only keep the exterior nice and shiny, and I'm not going to deal with the corruptness of my heart and my soul, you're teaching people to value sin over their Savior. And you're leading them away from God instead of to God. My question for you today is this. As we talk about this sin and this trap of obligation and of holding on to this idea of only worrying about the outside instead of dealing when the inside is this? Have you created a system where you're trying to live up to the obligations 
of God, what you think God wants from you. Are you keeping score with God and doing just enough on the outside to stay ahead instead of dealing with the greed and self-indulgence and desire to please your own appetite on the inside? Are you trying to barter with God and rationalize your behavior? I want to challenge you today. Would you stop just washing the outside of your heart and start dealing with the sinful corruption of your soul? This is not an easy message this morning. It's not a message that we hold on to and go like, man, I feel good walking out of here today. But here's why it is good news. Here's why we should walk out of here feeling good today. Because it is not a barter system. It is not a bargain that we have to have with God. God has won. God has provided grace beyond measure to overcome any sin and shortcoming in our life. And this is why the value of sin is nothing compared to the value of being able to surrender to God. And my prayer for you this morning is wherever you sit in here, if you have sitting in here and you've been in church your entire life and you've never understood what it meant to surrender to God, would you understand the value today in letting go that thinking you are obligated to God and God's obligated to you? And would you live in grace? Would you let God's grace and redemption move you to a point of being in a restored relationship with him, not into a barter relationship? Maybe God's prompting you to respond in a way today. And my prayer would be this. If God's if you need to talk to somebody, there are people all around this room that would love to talk to you about what, what this means. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Father, this morning, as we take just a few minutes to let this truth sink into our soul, God, to get past the exterior, this would not be a word this morning that it's just our minds or our thoughts and bounces away, or maybe we think, all right, I just want to change. I need to change this behavior or that. God, would this teaching penetrate into the very depth of our soul this morning? Would it change how we think about our sin, our pet sins, our favorite sins, our, our ones that we don't think are costing us anything, that we're not willing to clean out the inside? God, would you, not, would you make us not like the Pharisees, where we're not willing to do that in the stench of our sin? pervades every aspect of our life. God, today, let your truth be clear in our hearts. Let the truth of surrendering to you be the most obvious and most advantageous choice we can make. God, all around this room, I know in a message like this, it's easy to start beating ourselves up, to start thinking about our shortcomings, and our sin. And while maybe that's where we start in identifying those, God, let us not keep our gaze there. Instead, let us move it to you and your grace and your redeeming, healing forgiveness that can cleanse the depths of our heart. As David prayed in Psalms, would we pray the same, God, search me, know me, cleanse me and make me whole. Would that be our prayer this week? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.